would invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 will be the substance of our text uh, tonight. Actually, this will be the third message in chapter 1, and uh, we'll be looking at completing this thought of God's righteous judgment. You can think of this as God's righteous judgment, part 2. And if you wanted an additional title to that, Everlasting Destruction for Some, Glorification for Others. So, we're going to continue looking at this theme of God's righteous judgment. Our Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 3 that this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. So wicked men who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, they reject the gloriousness of the gospel of Christ, they they reject the people of God because they hate Christ, and Christ is in them, demands that they will be repaid, they will be recompensed from God. You see, His holiness demands retribution. His love is what had sent Jesus Christ to satisfy the retribution on behalf of His elect people. And I would even say that the cross of Christ stands as irrefutable evidence that God demands retribution. You see, if God is God, God must be a God of retribution to bring about justice to all the injustice that has taken place and was made reference to in our worship that there are some things being made right in this life, but ultimately it will be in that day when all things will be set right as God would come to recompense each man according to his deeds. Now, it disturbs me, I'll say at the outmost, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of endless punishment, or hell, to just put it simply. And it disturbs me how so many churches tiptoe around this doctrine. They get onto the outskirts and they barely even touch it. The Robert Schuller influence, that you know, you don't mention hell or sin or any of these things because you might upset somebody and somebody might leave and not give their money. Uh, there's so many churches in our day that, that would rather just skip a, a, a section of scripture like this rather than opening it up and expounding it. And what does this say to us today? Now, it's interesting also that if you look at the various surveys, the Barnett survey, you know, how many people believe in heaven and hell? 76% would you, can you imagine that? How many people believe in hell? It's like 70%. But as you would ask the second question, do you, what do you believe hell to be? Is it, is it an endless conscience torment? That number drops drastically to like 30%. Few people want to believe this doctrine. And so we're not going to tiptoe around it. We're going to look at what the Bible says in this text as we would consider it now. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 5 to verse 10 because that was the sub- we looked at 5 to 7a last week. We're going to be looking at 7b to 10. And I believe that was a good place to break the text. I hope you'll see why. But I'm going to read the whole section so we have uh, the context. So follow along with me as I begin in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus 
will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you bow with me in prayer one more time? Father, we do bow down before you, asking you, O God, that as we have just read these very sobering words, Lord, that each and every heart here would have ears to hear. And Lord, that you would enable me to proclaim this text accurately and that you would accomplish your most holy and perfect will in your people and perhaps in even those who do not yet know you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I began reading in verse 5, I should have began at the end of verse 4 because he's talking about their, their faith greatly enlarged, their love abounding, remember? And that's how they were able to, to maintain all these intense persecutions and sufferings because their faith was increasing. And so that's when he goes to verse 5. This is evidence, literally, would be a better translation, evidence of God's righteous judgment so that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. The very fact that they were suffering set forth the, the, uh, the, the principle of recompense, that God was going to recompense those who were inflicting persecution on them. God would inflict the afflictions on those who were afflicting them. And the idea of being considered worthy, we looked at that last time. It's not as though if you just suffer for the cross, you're automatically in heaven. It's more the idea that they were, their salvation was based on Christ alone, but their patient enduring in the midst of suffering marked them as worthy recipients of the kingdom of God. It is not so much that it made them worthy, but they were proven worthy because they, they were persevering in the midst of intense persecution. And of course, verse 6 talks about that principle that he would faithfully pay back those who had inflicted persecution. And then at the beginning of verse 7, where we left off last time, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. That's the other side of recompense. That's positively that he would give relief. So those who are being persecuted has to look forward to this rest at the beginning of verse 7 and then in verse 10 as we'll see the idea of being glorified of the Lord being glorified in his saints on that great and glorious day so tonight with God's help we're going to look at 7b to verse 10 and as I said Paul in the previous section had noticed had noted the principle of recompense and now he proceeds to dwell on the time and the setting and, and how it actually will unfold. Some have said that, that they think that Paul is quoting some ancient uh, apocalyptic hymn here, that this was some first century hymn speaking of the Lord's glorious return and judgment and in fire. There's no no documentation of that, but many have speculated that. So tonight we're going to see three main thoughts. We're going to look at the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed from heaven. That is the unveiling of the Lord when he comes. Secondly, the retribution that will be inflicted upon the enemies of God. And then lastly, the rest and the glory that will come to all the saints 
of God. So first of all, Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with splendor and might. He will be unveiled so that all will see him. Remember it says, actually the verse at the top of number 318 says that every eye will see him, right? Revelation 1.7. There's a sense in which he is veiled to the eyes of the whole world right now. There's a sense in which those of us who are born again, who have new hearts and who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we see him by faith. We walk by faith, right? But not by sight. But at this time, when it says here that the Lord Jesus will be revealed. That's the uncovering. That's the laying bare. That's the making naked. That's, that's setting it forth so that there's absolutely no denial whatsoever on what is happening. It is the unveiling of the, the Son of God coming in glory. Often Paul uses uh, this word uh, in a sense of, of a disclosure of divine truth. In First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, when he talks about he was caught up to the third heaven and to receive revelations from the Lord, unveilings from the Lord. So sometimes it's in reference to a disclosure of divine truth. But here it is most surely speaking of the glorious manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming, His second coming. It's apocalypso. That's the, that's the word where we get apocalypse from. So the veil that now hides him will be completely taken away so that every single eye will see him. The uncovering of Christ's final appearance refers not so much that he's coming from heaven to earth, but more it's the uncovering of the hidden presence of the Lord Jesus. The heavenly dimension, as it were, will be opened up and laid so that every single person will see it. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 1.7 where we await eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you remember in 1 Thessalonians, which we took some months going through, we looked at that word parousia, right? And that's speaking of the coming of the Lord. And that occurred five times in that book. And these, these are one and the same event. They're different words referring to the same event. It's important uh, to realize that. Now, when will this happen? When will this take place? That begs the question here. His coming will be seen by all, and so the implications of how you interpret this text will affect your eschatology. That is, it will affect how you view when the Lord Jesus Christ will come, how many times the Lord Jesus Christ will come. It will affect your view on that. And I will give you a few suggestions. Suggestions. I do not believe that Jesus Christ is coming back two times, once secretly and then, then the second time when he comes again. I do not believe the myth of some secret rapture. Uh, we spent a great deal of time in 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and in chapter 5 discussing that, that they are one in the same event. The unveiling of Christ, the coming in judgment to recompense the wicked and to bring relief to the righteous is one event. He will not be coming secretly to take his church and then to go away for seven years and then to come back again. That is not taught in the Bible. Why don't you turn back one page? Look at chapter 4. I'll just read the two verses here. Uh, that are T, verse 16 and 17, 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a 
shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord this is, there's nothing secret about this event here this is one of three texts that those who believe in what's commonly referred to as dispensationalism, this is one of the three texts that is used to prove a secret rapture. It is not there. In John 14.3, where I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come and receive unto myself, is one of those three texts. And where a secret rapture is in that text, I have no idea. Now, if you hold to this doctrine, I think we can still have fellowship together, but I do not believe that the Bible teaches this. Now, I want you to notice here, he says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed and then these three prepositional phrases from heaven with his mighty angels and in flaming fire first of all he's coming from heaven that is this is the incarnate son of God who has come to die on behalf of his chosen people who was crucified on a rugged cross who paid for every single sin of every one of the elect people of God who was buried in the tomb and was raised three days later, 50 days after that, has ascended to the right hand of the Father and now reigns victoriously in heaven. He is our great high priest. He intercedes on our behalf. He is at the right hand of the Father. And it is this one that will come from heaven at this unveiling and will come. So he comes from heaven. But notice secondly, he comes with his mighty angels as it's translated In the original, it's literally his angels of power. He's coming with his angels of power with him. And brothers and sisters, I think some of us need to have our understanding corrected about the doctrine of angels. What are the role? What is the role? What is the function of angels? Obviously, the purpose is to carry out the will of the Lord. I doubt seriously that these angels are these little chubby figures that, you know, baby faces with little halos floating around on, on clouds. I don't think this is the angels of his power. I don't think angels look like that. He's coming with the angels of his power. Angels give worship to God. Angels serve God day and night. They dispense his judgment on the wicked and they protect the godly. In relation to the second coming of Christ, they will be with Christ. They will execute the judgment of God as it has been foreordained before the foundation of the world, and they will protect and gather every single one of the elect so that none, he loses none, as it says in John chapter 6. Actually, turn back to Matthew 13. Book of Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. And verse 41. This is one of many examples that could be referred to. It says, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father 
he who has ears, let him hear. Turn to Matthew 22. Jumping ahead of myself a little bit here, but Matthew 22 is the parable of the marriage feast. It's the the parable where the workers are compelling those to come in and to come in, and so finally the feast is, is, uh, is set. The king looks forth. There's somebody not in wedding clothes that is not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so in verse 12 he says, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to his servants, which obviously referred to angels here, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's several other verses that could be referred to. I'd remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah, just even in the, the Pentateuch alone, there's many references to the angels, to the mighty angels of the Lord and how they carry out judgment and they will purge evil. But notice thirdly that it says that not only will the Lord Jesus be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, but in flaming fire. That is, it is a fire that is characterized by flames. Flames characterize the type of fire that this is. And the flaming fire points to what? God's holiness. I think it points to God's holiness on the one hand, but also God's judgment on the other hand, as you would study various passages in this. It says our God is a consuming fire in the book of Hebrews. Turn back to Isaiah 66. We're doing a little bit of flipping tonight. That's good for you. Stay on top of uh, where various books are in your Bible. But there's no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul has Isaiah 66 in mind in these verses that we're about to look at in verses 7, 8, and 9. And in verse 15, actually the last phrase of verse 14 of Isaiah 66. But he will be indignant toward his enemies. And behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Notice the reference three times to fire of how he will come and he will execute his judgment by fire. So it's as though Paul uses the language of the Old Testament here and the glorious manifestations of God is revealed to of judgment and fire and it's his holiness and fire and he applies them to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how he will come. The picture of fire is very vivid. Peter, in his second epistle in chapter 3, refers to fire several times. Just reading one verse for you. 3.7 says, But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The language that is used is very severe. Very severe, speaking to the terrible, terrible character of the coming of the Lord in relation to judgment upon those who do not know God. So that is how Jesus Christ will be revealed, firstly. Secondly, Jesus will, be, will inflict vengeance on his enemies. 
and reading verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So here Paul amplifies on verse 6 the principle of retribution here, recompense. Here he's amplifying on that as to what it would look look like. And first of all, he says that he is dealing out retribution. Dealing out a full and complete punishment on the enemies of God. The writer of the Hebrews says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The word retribution means a revenging, a vengeance, a punishment, to inflict a punishment on someone. So it is the inflicting of the full justice of God upon an enemy of God. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what it is. Now, this begs the question, who will receive this punishment? Who will receive this punishment? Now, look at the text here. It looks like there could be two groups of people dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, some have said that they think those who do not know God is a reference to the Gentiles, and then those who do not obey the gospel are a reference to the Jews because they had some theological base work of which to draw on, but they have rejected Christ, therefore they have not obeyed the gospel. But I deny that notion. I think that he's speaking of one group of people. And it's very clear here. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and the word and is the simple word chi that occurs 5,000 times in the Greek. It can, be, it can be translated even. And I think even would be a better translation. Dealing out retribution on those who do not know God, even those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So it's not speaking of two groups. It's speaking of those who do not know God, who have a willful ignorance of who God is, those who have rejected the gospel, those who have refused to obey the demands of the gospel, and they have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And by their willful disobedience, notice it's their willful disobedience, they they will spend an eternity in hell and probably the hottest part of hell. Those who have heard the glorious gospel of salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, extended to unworthy sinners, and reject that, and snuff their nose up to God and go the other way, I submit to you will spend an eternity in the hottest part of hell. They will endure the greatest misery that can be endured. Our Lord and Savior spoke in Luke chapter 12, 12 of various degrees of punishment. And I believe that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Now, having said all that, if you're here tonight and you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope you realize you are an enemy of God. And this is the future that you have to look forward to if you don't repent. Why would you not repent? Why would you reject such a wonderful and grand offer of salvation that is full and free? No money whatsoever. Just come. Come and look to the cross and cling to the cross for salvation, trusting in what He has accomplished on the cross. Why would you reject that? 
Why would you reject the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. And you say, no, I'll find rest my own way. Why would you reject such a glorious offer of mercy extended to you? And some of you young people, you still think, I can wait until I'm a little older. I want to do this. I want to do that. Maybe someday I'll believe. Listen to the great Puritan Thomas Watson. He says, by delaying repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. Just just as ice, the longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. Every time you harden your heart to the gospel, your heart is made harder and harder and more callous and until it's a thick leather over a stone that it's going to require... Well, it's a supernatural work, period. But the idea of hardening your heart continually is such folly. Because the day will come when finally God will give you over. And so that the best of heaven that you have is what you live for in this life. Which is here today and gone tomorrow. And then you will be standing before your judge and recompense for every one of your sins that you have committed. So why would you reject the Lord Jesus Christ in such a glorious offer of salvation? An offer that is full and free and and that requires no money, just come. Well, moving on to verse 9. It says that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. These enemies will pay a penalty. Now, these, it can be translated such people as these. As who? Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. It is these people, and they will pay this penalty. And and the word for penalty is is very interesting. It's decay, and so the root is righteousness. And, And so one of the meanings of the word is the execution of the sentence or punishment, or to suffer punishment. And so this is the penalty, a judicial hearing, a judicial decision, especially a sentence of condemnation. That's what the word means. All pointing to judgment and condemnation. And then this idea of will pay, the word for will pay here, the same thing, to pay by way of recompense, to pay the penalty. And so the two words together might be paraphrased, to pay a price by way of recompense, to pay the penalty. And what is that penalty? Well, he tells us eternal destruction. And the word for destruction there is absolute ruin. only occurs four times. It's not the normal word for destruction in the Greek New Testament. This word is ruin. <clears throat> Everlasting ruin. And this word, make no mistake about it, brethren, does not mean annihilation. It does not mean that you simply cease to exist. Oh, ruined, destructed, I guess there's nothing left, right? No, it does not mean annihilation. It implies the loss of all things that give worth to existence. And the adjective Paul uses to describe this ruin and destruction is eternal. It has no end whatsoever. There's no end to look forward to. You see, the worst of what you go through in this life usually has some end in view. You know, it's, at some point there's an end. If it's suffering for righteousness' sake, it's when you leave this world and enter glory. Because you know you're not going to live forever. 
But in eternity, there is no hope for any end whatsoever. And the nature of this penalty, its eternal destruction, is though that's not terrible enough, but Paul says, away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And again, I'm fairly certain Paul has Isaiah 2 in mind. We're not going to turn there, but I would mark it down and look it up later for yourself. Isaiah 2.10, 19 and 21, where this phrase is repeated three times. From Where do we hide? From the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. You see how that fits? with the, Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. So all, all of these who, 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 who are banished away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of His power, with no, help, no, no hope of any relief, will remain there forever. We need to remember eternal life. What does that remind us of? Just flipping the coin over for a minute. It, it, it reminds us of sweet communion with our Savior, of closeness to God, being near to God, being near the people of God, light, rest, Joy, peace, those are the types of things that we think of. Eternal destruction, which comes from God's justice, and it's manifested by His vengeance against your sin. It's the complete opposite of that. Away from the presence of the Lord, no sweetness, no peace, banished forever from the blessing of His glory, no light. Not to mention the incredible pain that will be involved with suffering that punishment. This is sobering to consider. Two huge extremes. As far as you can, one extreme eternal life and bliss in heaven in front of the Son of God to banished away from the presence of the Lord. Incredible implications for those who are enemies of God. Well, I want to talk a minute about the duration of the eternal state. Some teach uh, various forms of annihilationism, annihilation, the idea that we cease to exist. Some say that, well, when you die, you just cease to cease to exist. Others who are somewhat, uh, I hesitate to use the word orthodox, a little bit more closer to orthodoxy, I guess, believe that there will be a punishment for a season, whether it's a thousand years or whatever, and then you cease to exist. The Bible does not teach that. The principle of retribution demands that that not be true. And and, and, I think this appeals to the flesh because it softens God and it softens the doctrine of recompense. It softens His judgment extended to unworthy sinners. It makes God a better God, as some people may think. It makes the work of the cross a sham. If that's all there is, if that's all it is to cease to exist, why the cross? Why sin that the Son of God? No. Eternal means eternal. In fact, Ionius in the original, every time it's used, it's referring to unending and, and many more times to eternal life. But if you undermine that word, that, the, the word eternal, as it refers to destruction, and you say it might not mean that, you have to undermine that word in referring to eternal life. Well, eternal might not mean eternal. Maybe it's partial eternal life. So you can't, you can't damper with the word, okay? 
It means eternal life or everlasting death, Ionius. So in hell, there will be torment day and night, as Revelation 20 says, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, as we have read, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Which, by the way, that's in Mark 9. That's a quotation from Isaiah 66 as well, about the last verse in that prophecy. The idea of away from the presence of the Lord communicates some, um, indicates a real existence away from the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. And this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. To be cast into outer darkness, as we read in that parable, away from the presence of the Lord, biblically this is absolutely the worst thing that could happen to a person. This is the final horror of sin, that it ultimately separates the sinner from God forever and ever. And those who have enjoyed all of God's blessings all of, of, of the, the, the sunshine and the rain and, and food and good drink and food and all of this, even a gentle breeze on the face in an afternoon at the beach, watching an ocean wave break. All of the comfort and joy and peace and all of that that you had in this life will be lost forever. You'll never have any such satisfaction And there are no second chances. Some say, I'll roll the dice with God. I'm going, to, I'm going to forsake God now, but I'll have a deathbed conversion. Or maybe there's an opportunity beyond the grave. Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. There is no opportunity once you, once you enter the eternal realm, that state is fixed. And so the character of the gospel, according to our text here, is one of finality. To the degree that you reject it or accept it, that seals your eternal destiny. Those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the demands of the gospel will experience infinite loss. They will enter a night in which there is no hope of dawn ever coming. They will enter the darkness, the blackness of outer darkness away from the presence of Lord, the Lord. Thomas Brooks also says, The damned shall live as long in hell, and listen to this, as God himself shall live in heaven. How long will the damned be in hell? As long as God is in heaven. And I'm telling you right now, that is eternal. He is infinite, he is eternal, he is immutable, he will forever be there and reign there. Now, having looked at Christ being revealed and the retribution uh, inflicted on his enemies, let's look lastly at verse 10, and a much more cheerful topic. <laughs> Those who have believed will experience glory and rest. And, and this is really a continuation from 7a. Remember where he, he speaks of the principle of, of repaying, and he says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And then here, to be glorified. Others, or others will be the object of eternal glorification. And the idea here that he is glorified in his saints, not by his saints. You see, in this life we strive to glorify him by living holy lives, by doing deeds that are acceptable to him and pleasing to him, and all of that. But then, in that day, 
He will be glorified in our own persons. He will be glorified in us. The verse has this twofold focus that Christ will be glorified in the persons of His saints. And even now we display this now in this life as shining lights in this world, but that's so tainted. In that day when we are perfectly purified, glorified, when we are like Him, when we, we will know Him as He appears, we will be like Him. In that day, He will be glorified in His people. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You see, in that day there will be such an incredible transformation that His bride will be completely pure and glorified bodies that He will be glorified in us. But secondly, look at the text. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. The idea that we will be marveling at the person and work of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And that last phrase, for our testimony to you was believed, is parenthetical. And this is another way of Paul giving encouragement to this young church, that our testimony to you about these things was believed by you. I believe you're in this group, not in the group he just talked about. But let's talk about the idea of being... Marveled that he would be marveled at among all who have believed. That word is the same word that occurs in uh, Acts chapter 7 where uh, Stephen's giving his defense and remember the burning bush was there and then it says that Moses, when Moses saw it, he marveled at it. He was amazed by it. And do you believe that there will be no end to the wonder and marvel that we will experience in heaven in his presence? You will never grow tired. You will never grow bored. You will be marveling at, first of all, the number of all the elect that are there. That it's a multitude beyond anyone could number. You'll be marveling at the fact that God has extended His grace to such wretched, unworthy sinners. Yes, as yourself, but you will see people there that you will be surprised in how He's extended His salvation to the Gentiles. You'll be marveling and amazed at such a pure bride of Christ, such a pure people of God there worshiping and and such beauty and splendor. You'll be marveling at the work of the angels and how they are the servants of God, rendering worship unto Him. And yea, will we even be judging them? You see, you'll never grow tired or bored of this. You know, you might have a month-long European vacation plan to see all the reformational sites, see where John Calvin preached and all of that stuff that would excite me, and graveyards and that kind of stuff, you know, where these dead guys are buried. And, and to the degree you look forward to that, you may look forward to that and look forward to that, but while you're there, and when you come home, the buzz is gone, it's over. Heaven is not going to be like that. It will be one grand discovery after discovery after discovery into the mysteries of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must remember what Paul says to the Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We must also remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction 
momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. There's nothing I can even think of in the whole language to even say that it compares to. Far beyond all comparison. That's what we have to look forward to. Eternal weight of glory. We're going to touch more on verse 10 uh, next time as we would look at verse 11 and 12 to Paul's prayer. But for now, let's draw some concluding applications. First of all, let me ask you a question. Are you ready for this great and glorious day? Are you in Christ today? If so, remember that the rest and the glory that, that are yours, this should bring joy to your heart. This should bring peace in your life if you would contemplate these things. All of the manifold promises to the child of God are yours and embrace every single one of them. Redeem every one of them in prayer and every day throughout your life. Consider that instead of trouble, you will be given rest. Instead of an eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, you will have an eternal rest in the presence of the Lord. Another application, as we've touched on this doctrine of hell, if you really believe the Word of God to be infallible and God-breathed and that this is God's Word, that there's not a word of it that, that, that ought not be here, if you really believe that, you must believe the doctrine of hell. You must believe that those who reject Jesus Christ are going to spend an eternity in hell. And what's the application to us as far as evangelism? as far as sharing this glorious gospel that we have, as Paul calls this treasure and earthen vessels that we have. I hope you see the obvious application here that we have a duty to warn people. We have a duty to share the glorious gospel. Just as if you saw a house burning on fire and, and, and you knew people were inside, you'd pull the fire alarm, you'd go and knock, you would warn them. Where's the warning today? Where's the zeal for evangelism? Where's the urgency to share Christ and all of His glories with those who do not know Him? I've used this illustration several times. We need to put on the glasses of eternity and see people and their eternal destinies and that we would be compelled to go and to share the truth with them. Well, if you have rejected this glorious gospel and you're here You've rejected Jesus Christ as Savior. You're not trusting in Him. You have this terrible judgment to look forward to. One day it will be too late for you to repent. Those of you who keep putting it off and putting it off, listen to what Spurgeon said of the terrors of judgment. A very sobering quote. He says, Laugh at religion now. Scoff at Christ now. As the angels are gathering for judgment, now that heavens are red with fire and it is about to encircle you in its flame. Ah, no, I see you. Now your stiff knees are bending. Now your forehead for the first time is covered with hot sweat trembling. Now thine eyes, which was once full of scorn, are full of tears as you looked on him who you had despised and are weeping for your sin. Oh, sinner, it will be too late then. When judgment finds you, there eternity will leave you. 
a very sobering quote. So where is the place of safety? Maybe you're thinking, I don't want to wait till that day. I don't want to wait till it's too late. Where is the place of safety? Well, the place of safety is where the fires of God's judgment has already burned. And Ironside has this glorious illustration that he heard when he was nine years old, sitting under the hearing of the word, an illustration of the pioneers going across the, the central plain states and, and, and suddenly this massive fire out to the west and, and it was heading towards this large group of people and there was nowhere to run. It was heading right for them. The, the river was a couple uh, days, they crossed the river a couple days ago. There was no time to run back there. The grass was burning fiercely and it was heading toward them rapidly. One man seemed to have a plan. He gave the command to set fire on the grass behind them. Then, when a space was burned over, the whole company would move on that place that had already burned. A little girl cried in terror and said, Are you sure we will not all be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. What a picture of the believer who is safe in Christ. On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk the world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race, and thus becomes our hiding place. You see, the fires of God's judgment have burned themselves out on him for every one of his elect. All that are who are in Christ are safe forever, for they are standing where the fire has already burned. How I pray. If you do not know Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. Let's pray. Our holy, righteous Father, we do bow before you, having considered the sobriety of this text. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can trust it because of your character your holiness, your righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish your holy will in each and every person here tonight. We thank you for the many who have trusted in you and who are standing where the fires have already burned. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and motivate them unto um, a greater zeal for evangelism. Lord, we pray that you do glorious things to even this little church for your gospel being spread in this land. Lord, for any who are here that do not know you, have mercy. Send the Holy Spirit to convict, to stir, and to grant the gift of repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.